Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Dr. Luca Guglielmetti, Senior Research Scientist at the University of Geneva in Geneva, Switzerland. LinkedIn states that you are your research is multidisciplinary exploration methods for deep hydrothermal system exploration and aquifer thermal energy storage in sedimentary basins. Now that's a that's a mouthful. So Luca, in your words, who are you? What do you do as a senior research scientist? And most importantly, did I pronounce your last name right? Hi, John. Nice to nice to see you and to talk to you again. Yes, you pronounce my my name correctly. I know it's quite complex, but I get used after years of mispronouncing, and I'm always surprised when somebody pronounces it correctly. Uh, I am a geologist as a background. I did my my studies in Italy, in Turin, where I grew up, and my let's say geothermal journey. Uh, started actually in Yellowstone when I spent one year as a junior geoscientist. Um, and after uh, coming back to Italy, I wanted to develop a PhD in geothermal energy, which I, I eventually did uh, at the University of Turin and at the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland. My topic was mainly about uh, geothermal exploration of hydrothermal system in the in the Alps, in the mountains. And after my PhD, I moved to Larderello, where I worked for a, for a multinational Canadian company dealing with uh, exploration of high enthalpy resources. Since 2016, I joined the University of Geneva as a senior uh, research fellow. And my topic moved to sedimentary basins because specifically in Geneva, but over the entire Switzerland, the focus now is directed to the development of geothermal resources for heating and cooling from the Molasse Basin, which is a sedimentary basin, actually even a slightly active petroleum system with with all its implications in terms of exploration risks related to uh, hydrocarbon occurrence. My research topics mainly focus on the characterization and the resource assessment uh, of deep geothermal system. And for the past three years, I've been coordinator of the Swiss consortium of a large European project, which is called HeatStore, and that specifically deals with the topic of high temperature underground thermal energy storage. So the idea is to, is to find solutions to decarbonize the Swiss, but more in general, the European energy system. Uh, I'm also 
active uh, at the in the geothermal international community, being a part member of the EJEC, the European Geothermal Energy Council. In ATIPDG, I am a coordinator of the work package specifically uh, dealing with heating and cooling, and recently established collaboration with the International Geothermal Association to work on the application of geothermal energy in the agri-food sector. That's a very, very thorough background and and very interesting coming from the European side, because I really haven't gotten to work much in Europe yet in terms of geothermal. And so I, I know all of the kind of everything that you just said. I understand it. It's really exciting. I want to dive into it. But I'm not sure our audience necessarily knows what we're talking about when we're talking about aquifer thermal storage for agriculture. So let's let's take a few steps back and quickly go high level. In your own words, quickly define for us what is geothermal energy? Geothermal energy is the heat that is naturally stored in the subsurface, but that can be produced for human utilizations. Therefore, geothermal energy has some practical uh, impact on our uh, daily daily life. Okay, so that is the energy flowing up out of the earth. Now, you you made a point that you decided to study geothermal energy after visiting Yellowstone. I'm curious with that, what about Yellowstone or what about that trip made you interested in geothermal energy? Well, basically to me, it was always, it has been always a dream to to visit Yellowstone since I was a kid. And when I got the scholarship uh, in 2007 to spend one entire year in Yellowstone, you can understand that as a geologist, this was a unique opportunity that I couldn't miss. So I immediately accepted and I spent one year there and being surrounded every single day by the power of the Yellowstone Park and its geothermal energy really triggered my, my curiosity and pushed my, my desire to, to explore more about what was under our feet in Yellowstone, but in general, what we have in terms of geothermal resources everywhere. And this is what actually uh, became very, very crucial for my career, because from, uh, from a purely volcanic region, uh, extreme conditions, I had the opportunity to, to work on different geothermal uh, settings, which uh, actually I consider a very great, let's say, enrichment uh, and opportunity to really understand what geothermal energy is. That's really cool. And I I completely agree. My my first trip to Yellowstone was when I was like 14 or 15. And it it was definitely one of those life-changing experiences going and seeing the geysers, seeing the hot springs and and physically feeling the energy 
that is there. And one thing, this is a, a small tangent, but everybody always talks about wind and solar, how you can feel the wind on your face or you can see the sunlight shining down. And everybody always, I, I feel like our community, the geothermal community then says, what is there with geothermal? You can't physically see it or, or feel it. But if anybody's ever been to Yellowstone, if anybody's ever taken a hot shower, that's, that's kind of like geothermal energy. That is heat being transferred through water. And then you can physically either see the steam or feel the warmth. So that's, that's something I keep pushing is we do have tangible examples of what geothermal energy is. And I think that will help make geothermal a, 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 a household name. So that I guess I'm, I'm, I think it's great thinking about geothermal and it, it really sounds like one of the best resources possible. Sounds like it's all over Europe. It's in the U.S. So is it something that we can use today, kind of worldwide, everywhere? Absolutely, yes. Of course, it depends on the type of use that we, that we expect. Uh, geothermal energy, per definition, being the heat below our feet, it is everywhere. We know that the temperature in the subsurface increases with what we call a geothermal gradient of about 30 degrees per kilometer, which means that wherever we are, we drilled a few hundreds of meters and we already have a geothermal resource available. What changes is actually the type of fluid that we can extract. We can have steam or what we call the high enthalpy, eh? the high temperature resources, which are located in very specific areas. We are talking about Iceland, Central Italy, Indonesia, New Zealand, California, Mexico. This is where geothermal energy has been developed since the very beginning. Eh? In 1904, the, the first light bulbs were lighted in, uh, in Larderello, in Italy. Uh, thanks to a visionary experiment from a very rich investors and businessmen uh, in, uh, in Tuscany. Um, therefore, power production has always been the main focus of geothermal since, let's say, about 10 years ago, when eventually we, the geothermal community uh, started to understand that if we think at our daily life and our daily energy needs. We take a car, we push the button uh, in our house, house to light uh, to light the light and you know to use the, the fridge and etc. The TV. But 50% of our energy need comes from heating and cooling. And this is actually where geothermal can play one major role in decarbonizing the global energy system. And what is very important to, to mention is that uh, heating and cooling can really be developed at different scales from individual installation to city-wide uh, development everywhere in the globe. As long as we have heat, which we know that we have, 
we have a fluid that allows us to extract the heat from the subsurface and to extract the fluid from the subsurface, we need a media, a volume of rock, which we call a reservoir, which is porous and permeable. Therefore, it allows the fluid to circulate and to be extracted. And these conditions can be identified everywhere in, uh, in, in uh, all over the globe. Yes. Thank you for that, that explanation on where and how we can use geothermal. So I think this would be a good, a good jumping off point to really dig into your research focus areas. One of them being, being the, the, uh, one of them being the exploration methods for deep hydrothermal. So can you explain a little bit what I guess what the definition of deep is here and and why why do we have to go deeper to find these systems? Yeah. Basically, deep geothermal systems by definition are all those geothermal systems and resources which are located uh, below hundreds of meters of depth. This is because the first, let's say, 200, 300 meters uh, are usually, uh, let's say, low, low temperature resource that can be used by installing ground source heat pump uh, for a direct uh, application in the small scale heating and cooling applications. The deeper we go, the more resource we have the chance to uh, to reach and to produce and therefore larger scale uh, installation can be can be developed and this is actually uh, a big portion of the new market opportunities that are opening uh, in europe for example uh, where even big company including uh, oil and gas company are looking at it as a as an opportunity hmm? To, to increase their portfolio of, uh, of projects. What uh, I do specifically for my job is not very much different to what we do in, um, in oil and gas exploration. To, to characterize and to identify geothermal reservoirs, uh, we need to take into account of different parameters, including uh, the, the, the geomechanics of, uh, of the reservoir, the fluid composition, therefore, its chemistry, which has impacts not only on the type of fluid that we that we can extract, but also on the choice um, regarding the, the material for uh, drilling, but also for the uh, installation at the surface, talking about gathering system, pipes, um, and heat exchangers, turbines, all these. Uh, are also defined technically according to the fluid compositions. Um, then we have to take into account, we, we have to run really an exploration campaign, an exploration program that covers geophysical methods such as gravity, mag magnetotelluric, and in sedimentary basing, the method that is used, and now in Geneva we are shooting as we speak now, 200 square kilometers of 3D seismic targeting reservoir at about two to five kilometers in depth. Of course, seismic is the is the is the main method that is used. 
to combine all this data, we have, of course, I'm part of a team for sure. Uh, <laughs> I can't do everything by myself. Geothermal is not a one-man show. Eh? It's always uh, the success of, a, of any project is related to, a, to a, a, an efficient it's a collaboration. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, what we do is that we combine this data to produce 3D subsurface models, a set of them, because by definition, a model is not an exact representation of, of the subsurface. Therefore, we have to create many that then we... Uh, we move to the simulation of how the fluid circulate and what can be the production scenarios. Once we have these scenarios, of course, we can also quantify the uncertainty, which has an impact on the economics of an entire project. Therefore, my goal is really to go from the resource assessment to, let's say, the more um, financial, uh, aspect that cover the entire spectrum of a geothermal uh, exploration program. That sounds like a like a fun project and a lot of a lot of moving parts. I, I'd like to dig into the to the idea of the modeling. Mm -hmm. Say, say. 10 years ago when I was first starting my PhD you were you were first getting getting towards graduating your PhD what was possible then in terms of real high resolution 3D modeling compared to now and are there any any specific advances in say computing power or or really our understanding or our data collection techniques that have made higher resolution modeling possible? Yeah. What, what I really see as an evolution in, uh, in the past 10 years is that with respect to model, we, we are moving towards from a rather deterministic approach. Therefore, we add the data and this is the model that then we, are, we, we use to, to, take, uh, to take decisions. Uh, now, thanks also to the technology advancement, for example, in cloud computing and, uh, and so forth, we can generate lots of equiprobable models, which all explain our exploration data. Uh, just think about when a, uh, a group of geologists and geophysics look at a seismic line or a seismic data. Most probably, if you give the same seismic line to 10, to 10 people, you will probably get eight to 10 different interpretations. Uh, before, this was really different, difficult to capture into a 3D model. Now we can create eight, 10, 50, hundreds of models. And this has a huge impact because thanks to that and to geostatistics, for example, we can quantify the uncertainty. And quantifying the uncertainty has an impact on the probability of success of our project. Identifying target at four kilometers in depth is not a trivial task. You really have to understand what are the uncertainties that you have to embed in your model. And this is really something that when I was doing my PhD, one of the main remarks of one of the um, uh, reviewer of my thesis was really, how did you assess the uncertainty? And at the time, to me, it was really difficult to reply. Now, we have lots of tools 
that can allow doing that. And this has implication on the de-risking of a geothermal project. And this is very important for industrial uh, applications specifically. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I think the one of one of the one of the largest costs with geothermal is is the drilling. And obviously a a dry hole. And in this sense, it really is a dry hole where you don't have sufficient water flow. It that is that's one of the biggest risks. So de-risking at the early stages and the the new computing power and and abilities with things like cloud computing that let us run those 100 models that really is it's a it is a a significant advantage to geothermal development today versus 10 years ago and if i can just add something on top of that i mean you are totally right and to go a little bit more in detail also to enhance a little bit of a difference between what oil and gas company uh, are seeking in terms of reservoir with respect to the geothermal. In geothermal, we don't have, we don't really look into primary porosity reservoirs. It's very hard to have a primary porosity reservoir all over the globe. Most of the reservoirs that we are seeking uh, and targeting are fractured. And you can imagine that having a proper understanding of the geomechanics of the reservoir and therefore starting from a well-bore image and log to understand the, the stress field, the fractured behavior, the fractured orientations, uh, to upscaling at the reservoir scale by, for example, a set of DFN, discrete fractured network, which then you can use to estimate and to predict petrophysical properties such as permeability, this is something that 10 years ago was really tricky to do. Now, it's really something that not only the scientific community is looking at, but also the industry. Thank you for, for adding that part. And I think that's it is a really important aspect to highlight. I'm curious, what is your take on, on the idea of oil and gas well conversion to geothermal power many of those reservoirs are are a primary or secondary porosity driven reservoir except for we're talking about kind of late stage mature conventional oil and gas assets in a traditional porosity driven reservoir how what do you think is the most important part when it comes to converting a well, an oil well, to a geothermal well in one of these traditional res reservoirs yeah. compared to what we typically target, which are those fractured reservoirs. This is absolutely one of the most hot topics in the geothermal community. Repurposing oil and gas well is becoming more and more important and I understand that in the US as well, in Canada, for example, there are really hundreds, if not thousands of relatively dry well that still produce even more than 90% of hot water, a reasonable temperature that can be exploited. Uh, I see two main challenges 
Uh, one is purely technical. Uh, first of all, um, if we think about oil and gas well and geothermal well, the, the design and the diameters that uh, are used are different. Usually, uh, geothermal well have a larger diameter in the open hole section uh, that allows big flow of hot water or, or steam. Therefore, assessing the potential of heat of each um, dry well, it's, uh, it, 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 can be, it can be tricky. And this actually has an impact on the financial uh, sustainability of such a project. Um, also, we have to take into account that there are two solutions mainly to repurpose geothermal uh, oil and gas wells. First of all, is simply to convert it in a sort of a water well, but being produced from an oil and gas reservoir, the composition of the, of the water might be complex to manage. Therefore, there will be lots of cost in terms of surface uh, installations. We might still have some, some dissolved gas, for example, or even free gas uh, being produced. So what, what should we do? Uh, should we flare the, the methane, for example, while we produce the hot water? This wouldn't be a nice image, I think. So there, uh, there, should, be, there should be more, um, uh, more studies on that. But for sure, this is the future uh, of one part of, of, of the oil and gas less geothermal, uh, geothermal industry. And the other point that I think it's the most complex to, to resolve is the, is the legal framework. Uh, in many, I, I don't think there is any country in the world that has a, a proper adaptation of the legal framework to convert an oil and gas well to a, to a geothermal well. And therefore, this is something that before discussing about technical issues, this, will be, this should be the first uh, aspect that should be taken into account for this type of project. And it's not the individual industry that should do that, but there should be the administrations that have to deal with this. So you can understand that at this level, it might take time and therefore it can be complex in the short term to easily reconvert oil and gas well to geothermal. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I, I think that is a, a very interesting point that the legal framework really needs to be in place because otherwise your conversion may be illegal. <laughs> exactly. I it is I think that's that's one of the the great parts about about the the US specifically in Texas where many of these wells are on private property there is there is a, a there are less regulations around that. This is one of the the parts where regulation is is necessary but it also as you point out this could could hinder or or slow the progress of geothermal adoption in the oil and gas industry so for for any lawyers out there listening and you want to get into geothermal let's start changing the let's start changing the regulations get them to be more pro-geothermal. 
Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Just a quick interruption to share a few things that are going on in October. We have not one but two industry mixers this month, one on October 7th and one on the October 21st. Just check out our social. They're always great events, and the money that you help us raise goes to fight human sex trafficking, and you get to network with oil and gas executives. We have a new show that just came out, Energy Transition Podcast. Also remember, we have 14 other podcasts for your listening pleasure. And then the end of this year, we'll be full media partners for the 23rd World Petroleum Congress, December 5th through 9th. The World Petroleum Congress has not been in Houston over 30 years, so make sure you put space in your calendar. Come check us out. And then finally, join the OGGN Street Team on LinkedIn. It's our all-volunteer group that's really going places. I'll see you again next month. I I think this is a, a good point to to talk about your past history. So you were you were originally with the you're with Magma Energy working in Lardoreiro and and then you shifted and and made that made that jump to academia. I'm curious what prompted that shift. And yeah, what, what prompted that shift from industry to academia? That was a, that's a tricky question. <laughs> Basically the, the working experience in Lardarello was simply amazing. Uh, I had the opportunity to, to really uh, experience the daily life of uh, a geothermal company with ambitious program. Uh, covering every aspect of the exploration until the the design of the wells and the, and the power plant however again the legal framework and the political uncertainty in italy played a major role in my decision to 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 leave to quit italy and go back to switzerland to join the academia because uh, they were really, really challenging for uh, for the company to move to the drilling operations. And after uh, a bit of time of relatively frustrations and understanding that geothermal was quickly moving towards new opportunities, even scientifically opportunities of research, uh, in sedimentary basins, in medium, uh, in medium enthalpy, medium temperature resources. Therefore, talking about resources between, let's say, seventy to hundred and thirty, hundred and forty degrees, which, as I said before, are much more available and widespread globally. I really thought that this was the opportunity to cover another uh, another aspect of of geothermal. Uh, uh, and therefore, moving to sedimentary basin to me was really was really a, a great choice. And I actually joined a research group which was exclusively dealing with oil and gas research project. And joining that group actually allowed the entire um, the entire research team to enter into the geothermal uh, community. And thanks also to the support of the local uh, utility company, which are the industrial services of Geneva, uh, which are carrying out this, uh, 
gigantic exploration program all over the canton since 2014 to me was a unique opportunity. Therefore, uh, it was almost a no-brainer choice. Uh, I had the opportunity and I simply take it. I think that's a... It's kind of why any of us ever really switch careers or switch positions is because there's a, a greater opportunity. And, and what I hear, what I heard you saying is that the opportunity was not just for you specifically to work on something new. And as geologists, we always like to see new rocks, but I think it, it was also the, almost the the reemergence of geothermal in sedimentary basin settings because as you pointed out earlier the the main focus for electricity has has most often been volcanic settings the ring of fire iceland indonesia california but now we are seeing this kind of resurgence of sedimentary basin interest and as you point out that that low to mid enthalpy kind of energy 70 to 130 degrees celsius the what so what kind of projects do you work on now in terms of actually utilizing that low enthalpy energy two are the main uh, research axes that i'm that i'm working on the first is purely subsurface uh, related and it's really about collecting and developing new acquisition strategies to reduce the uncertainties uh, of uh, exploration at the reservoir scale. And this was done uh, in the GCOS project. GCOS stands for Geothermal Energy Chance of Success, where we could use uh, actually benefit from uh, a geothermal well uh, that was recently drilled by uh, Service Industrial de Genève to collect uh, geophysical data, the reservoir scale. Therefore, we combine gravity, uh, active seismic, uh, which was uh, 2D lines, but also VSP, vertical seismic profiling, where we also applied the utilization of uh, optic fiber which was a very exciting project, uh, which resulted in some uh, really, really good outcomes, in particular focusing on the improvement of, uh, of resolution uh, at the reservoir scale for this type of fractured reservoir. Using the optic fiber allows you to have like a 50 or 20 centimeters sampling, uh, sampling rate uh, vertically uh, in the well. And you can imagine that with this type of data, you can really uh, identify and characterize fractured networks and uh, allow also you to propagate this information at the reservoir scale. Mm -hmm. the, the other topic that it's even more exciting to me because it goes far beyond uh, purely subsurface, and this is a, a message that to me is very important is that this new wave of generation of uh, yeah new wave of of geothermal energy in sedimentary basin focusing on heating and cooling has to move away from the pure subsurface characterization because if you want to deliver heat 
our customers have to be close to our production site. Talking about less than 15, 20 kilometers, otherwise the heat will be, will be affected by losses uh, during distribution. Therefore, the big challenge here is to really identify and to develop the proper geothermal resource according to the demand of the heat demand. And the combination of subsurface and surface element is what we are dealing with in the heat store project, which adds a, even a little bit more of complexity because we are specifically talking about uh, thermal energy storage in geothermal reservoirs. Therefore, capturing waste heat from industrial or uh, civil, uh, civil applications, uh, storing it in the subsurface seasonally during low heat demand periods, and then recovering it during high demand in order to replace fossil fuels, which are usually the dominant part, uh, the dominant source for the heating and cooling sector. In, uh, in Europe. And these actually require a complex framework of competences. Uh, in this project, just for Switzerland, we are more than 20, 20 people working on that, and which are not just subsurface. We have a team specifically focusing on energy system integration, energy system modeling, and providing input, for example, for the dynamic reservoir modeling, because we need to understand what is the temperature that we need to store? What is the temperature that we need to deliver and when? Therefore, these inputs are, are crucial if we want to model uh, the performance of a, of, a, of a reservoir. Therefore, yes, these are the two main topics. And I believe that they can be uh, deeply uh, investigated even more because some technologies such as heat storage is relatively immature at the moment, but have a potential of, re of replicability everywhere. Uh, therefore, uh, talking about, for example, repurposing the wells, if we can, for example, run high resolution VSP in, in those wells and really characterize how eventually the water can be uh, seasonally produced, uh, there would be there would be definitely uh, a step forward towards a more accurate reservoir characterization. That's really exciting. And as you were talking, there were multiple multiple ideas running through my mind. the The last one was was how you how you were stating that. And. And correct me if I heard you wrong, but basically because of the dynamics of the reservoir, because you're pumping out so much water and you're pumping back in water and you're moving the resource around, this requires a very high resolution reservoir model and being able to really, really understand what is going on in the subsurface, not just an estimate with how much resource there may be, but really understanding how much physical space you can put water in, store it there for six months, how much heat is going to go into that water, and now how much of that heat you can produce. 
Exactly, exactly. That's uh, that's the big uh, the big challenge in this kind of uh, storage project. The big the big question is: okay, I can store hot water at maybe hundred degrees in a reservoir, which is naturally at fifty. But how much of that heat I can I can eventually recover after six months? And this is all about a proper understanding on the petrophysical distribution of the reservoir that control the fluid flow. And to do that, we really need a detailed understanding of the subsurface that should respond to the energy demand that is actually needed. Not all reservoirs are adapted to all energy demand. That, uh, that, uh, that's a big point to, to, to stress in this type of projects. Yeah. And as as we're thinking about these high resolution reservoirs, I could see a direct application to something like carbon sequestration or carbon storage, because there it it when we're talking about trying to get all of that carbon back into the ground, it we really want to know just how much space we have, and then what is the time frame for if there will be any any type of of uh, geochemistry and any type of uh, reactions occurring creating or turning that carbon into carbonate we really want to have that high resolution model to know where and how the porosity and permeability may be changing i do want to i want to paint a scenario for you so say you've got a a very old oil and gas field. It has something on the order of 100, 150 wells at about 500 meters deep or around 2,000 feet deep, somewhere in that fairly shallow range. And and this this field is just kind of sitting now idle because the majority of the oil has been produced and now it's just water that's being produced. So it's it's no longer economic from a oil and gas perspective. What would you as a researcher propose from a geothermal angle on how to make that field a a profitable geothermal system? First of all, I would approach the problem knowing that as you said the well are relatively shallow therefore probably power generation can be excluded as a scenario i will ask the owner of the well a map to to see where the wells are located with respect to villages are there customers close by if so the solution would be most probably to install a series of big heat pumps that can eventually increase the temperature to fit the, 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 the hot water demand and then just use those uh, to, in, the, in the local distribution system. That can be one solution which either can be uh, implemented by directly extracting the water from the wells 
or we can even install some uh, closed loop system like uh, the standard ground source heat pumps uh, where you install these uh, U-shaped tubes where uh, a working fluid circulates and extract or exchange more, more accurately heat with the media, with the reservoir. Therefore, no uh, water from the reservoir is, uh, is actually extracted. And this can be actually a solution. And this is where the market of the geothermal heat uh, probes is moving. Uh, since now it focuses mostly in the upper 200 meters, just to give a, an order of magnitude of the depth that was considered as a commercial uh, interest for this type of application. Now we are moving towards deeper, um, deeper uh, geothermal probes, talking about 500 to even one kilometer. Just a few examples from, uh, from where I live here in Switzerland, in, in Lausanne. There is an entire neighborhood which is uh, connected to a series of 35, if I'm not mistaken, deep ground source heat pump which are about 500 to 800 meters they are all closed loop and they are feeding covering the uh, the entire need for heating and cooling of this uh, of this neighborhood and talking about repurposing wells even in geneva a few kilometers from where i live in 1994 the deepest well geothermal exploration well was drilled 2.5 kilometers um, which was not producing at all, literally 0. Point something liters per second, which was really low, low flow rate. Therefore, no commercial uh, use was ever, uh, was ever implemented. But next year, uh, a deep uh, geothermal probe will be installed in this well, which has been kept open since, uh, since the 90s, and this will feed a new uh, group of houses, households that has been recently built. So therefore, the building were specifically also designed to integrate this type of solution in their heating and cooling sector. Another applications, if the demand is not close enough to uh, to, to allow the, the, the construction eventually of reasonable uh, cost-effective distribution system. With this type of temperature, talking about 30, 40, 50, 60 degrees, there's huge potential of creating market opportunity for the agri-food sector. Uh, we know that the, that the food sector in general is far from being sustainable and uh, environmentally friendly. It has lots of uh, global warming potential, specifically in the production phase. And geothermal can provide a really broad spectrum of applications using heat even for uh, from low temperature resources, talking even 10, 15 degrees. And greenhouses or fish farming or food drying are three of the main um, of the main application of geothermal energy in the food sector, and they don't need 100 degrees they need temperature range between 30 and 60 degrees. Therefore, if around this non-productive oil and well, uh, a geothermal agri-food district could be built, that would be, to me, 
one of the best solutions and the decision that uh, a project developer could do because eventually they will also produce not just the megawatt, but they will produce tomatoes, they will produce whatever vegetable, fruit, fishes, and etc. that people can really buy at the supermarket, eat at the restaurant. They, they can cook with those ingredients. And this is actually, in terms of also social acceptability and social perception of geothermal, this has a huge, huge power, much more than, of course, a power plant or a geothermal well. Yeah, I think that's a, it's almost like a second life to these older oil fields. They they produced a resource that we were using that had benefited society, that had helped help us grow into the world we are today. And now the ones that are no longer profitable, the ones that are sitting idle, you could, if I heard you correctly, the idea could be to to now go in and build around that resource, the the resource being existing wells, existing reservoir. Now we could go in and build a a controlled climate agriculture system around that. Or if it's close enough to population centers where there is a heating and cooling demand, we could repurpose those wells for directly heating and cooling. Exactly. Yes. So we've kind of gone over a lot of different ideas and a lot of jumping around. I want to start wrapping up. Where do you see geothermal in the next five years? In the next five years, maybe it's a relatively short time span. I would see geothermal developing a little bit more for power in countries such as uh, South America, for example. Um, I'm not sure that where geothermal power is already running, there will be much more development. For sure, probably China will, will expand much more. But the real boost will be in the heating and cooling sector. Uh, that that is definitely the the future of uh, of geothermal energy, because power generation from geothermal has always to compete with other sources, renewable or not. Heating and cooling, not really, because there are the possibility that geothermal provides for covering heating and cooling demand at different temperature ranges, this is something that is unique for geothermal. And that's one really the big unique selling point of geothermal, even for the past, uh, for the, sorry, for the next uh, five to 10 years, for sure. It's a very, very interesting point. Something that, that I've never really thought about the idea that the grid the electricity grid only has so much space. So even though geothermal, we talk about it being base load, we talk about it being able to ramp up and down, being flexible, but ultimately 
there's only so many electrons you can put on the grid, which means geothermal is competing with everything else out there that's trying to get on the grid. That's a really, really important point that you make. But I I think it's a also great and important point that heating and cooling, geothermal has this unique opportunity to to supply heat directly at a different temperature range and a really the the most direct or the quickest path is a straight line. So if you can take that heat directly from the earth, directly put it where it needs to be used at that temperature it needs to be used at, it's it is it's the most efficient. And that's really about more efficiency equals equals less waste and less waste equals less carbon exactly exactly that's uh that's exactly how should how every geothermal project in the future should focus um of course there are other applications that are emerging such as metal extraction in particular lithium or green hydrogen the technology there in this in this sector is uh, is advancing quite rapidly but for sure, uh, eating and cooling will be the, the main driver to boost geothermal. I like it. All right, so now my final questions. These are a little less related, but still important. What is the most important book you've ever read? Oh my God. I think it was, uh, it is, I, I can't remember the, the title in English, but it, 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 in Italian, it's um, the, the, the great story uh, of uh, the Pleistocene man. It is a very funny, uh, funny book that describes actually in a, let's say, a little bit um, fantastic way how uh, the first human being discovered, for example, the fire or was scared about volcanoes and etc. started cooking, uh, cooking the meat using the fire and how they transported the fire from a lava field to, to, their, uh, to their cave and etc. And this to me was really something that I, I read it like two, three times in my life. And it's always inspirational because uh somehow <laughs> it it keeps my my mind really with well my feet very solid to the ground <laughs> understanding maybe you know getting closer to our origins and our origins are also related to to geothermal <laughs> to geothermal energy so uh to me it's it's a sort of closing the loop of uh, of my not only working uh, working uh, path but in general about my 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 life <laughs> yeah that sounds really interesting i will that's going to jump many of the book recommendations for me i will so say the, the exact title later on if you want <laughs> okay yep yep i'll get the the exact title and add it to the show notes Next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Net zero as a society? My God, this is, this is a horrible question. Net zero is probably a very ambitious plan. Do we really want to be net zero? Um, I'm not really sure that, uh, that this is achievable. We will always need... Uh, 
at least for the next uh, decades uh, to use fossil fuels. Maybe not for, uh, for energy supply, but we are surrounded by that. Therefore, thinking about achieving this is not, is not the way to think because let me tell you something. Net zero specifically deals on the environmental pillar of sustainability. Do we really want to focus on that or you want to focus on the three pillars of sustainability, which are economy, society, and then the environment? If to achieve net zero will make less, uh, less benefit and uh, economical benefit for the local communities or welfare for the society, is it really the way to go? I don't think so. I think that we should aim towards a definitely more sustainable future, but that doesn't mean that more sustainable means net zero. I think that is a, a very reasonable and pragmatic approach to the question. And, and I, I do, I completely agree that it is, it is very ambitious to think about net zero and it is a, it is important to look at what sustainability is, all three pillars of sustainability, because it, when we are only looking at one, it's the same as if, if you've got a, a three-legged stool. If you only make sure one of those legs is good and nice and solid, you've got two failure points that, that can occur. So very good answer. The, <laughs> the last question, what do you have any questions for me or a question for me? Well, the main question that I have for you is where do you see North America in the next five years with respect to energy transition and uh, sustainability. Um, we, in Europe, we, we receive lots of information about, you know, uh, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, uh, and all the billionaires investing on this crazy project about, you know, going on Mars and etc. Why American people want to leave planet Earth? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's another great question. Why do we want to leave the planet Earth? But to your where are we going to be in five years from the US perspective? I think we are going to make some some significant headway in terms of decarbonization. I, I think a lot of that is going to be focused on specific areas within the oil and gas industry. So where that, where that falls is improving efficiencies in, in general hydrocarbon production in carbon sequestration and carbon utilization. And I think in the next five years, maybe there will be a breakthrough in terms of a, a major advancement in battery technology driven by Elon Musk and, and the electric vehicle movement. Maybe there will be 
a major advancement in in uh, solar panel energy conversion technology. What I would like to see personally is a major advancement in reutilization and repurposing of oil and gas wells. It is something I've been passionate about and have done this sedimentary basin focused research for for the past few years, maybe going back five years now. And it is something that that being in Texas, it is a it is a known resource that is there that I that I can see being thrown away in certain scenarios. And and that's what that's one of our major focuses with with my company, Petrolearn, is this conversion technology and, and getting wells online for geothermal energy production. And as as you point out, it's not just electricity, it is electricity and heat. It's really whatever that end demand user is, that is what we should be developing the resource for. And I really hope to see, I guess the the basic answer is I, I think we're going to have more momentum in five years and hopefully we're going to have more, more green electrons on the grid and less carbon being produced into the atmosphere. That's, uh, that's great. And I think that whatever US will do uh, will have a great impact on the choice of other countries. So uh, I really hope that US will, will be a driver, a huge driver for this energy transition. Yep, yep. I, I hope so as well. Well, Luca, thank you very much for joining me on this show. Are you are you going to be at either the Geothermal Rising Conference or the World Geothermal Congress? Uh, not really. Uh, I will not be able to to go to Iceland this time, uh, unfortunately. But I really hope there will be an occasion in 2022 to to get together with the international community again, uh, because we really miss <laughs> this type of conference. Yep. Well. Thank you again for being on the show. I am looking forward to seeing you the next time I do get to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it was a great, great discussion with you. And I wish you all the best, Joe, for, for your future. Thank you, Luca. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're still listening, I can only assume that you like my show. So please do me a favor give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing this, these two simple actions will help, help get these stories to reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great stories, keep up to date with the energy industry. Connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, check out the Canon co-working space. I enjoy working from there while I'm in Houston and it's where we host our OGGN monthly happy hours. Mention OGGN for a free day pass and see what I'm talking about. Until Join next us again time, next week for another low carbon, carbon high, high energy, energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.